Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.scbts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Well, good evening, and it is a joy to be back with you tonight. Take your Bible and join me in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, and we're going to give our attention to verses 29 through 34, a day in the life of Jesus. Mark, chapter 1, verse 29 through verse 34. As you're turning there, let me share that we've had a wonderful week at our seminary, celebrating our 60th anniversary. It's amazing to think that Southeastern has been around since 1950. And that God has blessed the school in such a wonderful way. Uh, when I came there the first time in 1992, we had right at 585 students. Today we have almost 2,650. And so God has been very good to bring many more students to our school. In fact, we've just had our largest enrollment in history. This fall was even larger than last fall, so it looks like we'll have another record enrollment this year. Uh, we... Yesterday, inaugurated the Johnny Hunt Chair of Expository Preaching. Uh, men and women that believe in Brother Johnny's ministry helped raise a million dollars, which will endow uh, a chair of preaching that will provide the salary for the person that occupies that chair and continues to perpetuate uh, the wonderful ministry of Johnny Hunt, uh, who is most deserving of an honor like that. We have more missionary students coming than ever before, more church planning students coming than ever before. Uh, there's really a sweet, sweet spirit on our campus, and so uh, we're really in a time of, of great spiritual prosperity and blessing. And uh, I would be remiss if I didn't say thank you to this church that uh, prays for us. Many in this church support us. We're in the church budget. And uh, so there's such a wonderful relationship that exists between Wake Crossroads Baptist Church and the Southeastern Seminary. And I probably don't say it enough, but thank you so much for making it possible for us to do all that we're doing over there at this particular time. Well, Mark chapter 1, verses 29 through 34, six very simple verses, but some very powerful teaching is contained here that will allow us to address a number of interesting questions, such as, uh, is there healing in the atonement? Another question, is all illness, sickness, and physical malady demonic in its origin? And then another question that theologians often grapple with, it is called the messianic secret. Why is it that repeatedly in the Gospels, and in particular the Gospel of Mark, why is it that Jesus again and again tells people, uh, don't speak of me, uh, don't tell people who I am, uh, be silent? Uh, it's understandable why he does that with demons, but sometimes he even does that with his own disciples. Why is it that if his goal is to extend the gospel to the ends of the earth and to extend the gospel throughout Palestine uh, and, and his fame is growing and crowds are building, why in the world, in the midst of that growing popularity, would he say again and again and again, be quiet, don't tell anyone? And so we're going to see part of those uh, issues addressed this evening from this particular text. So Mark chapter 1, verse 29. And immediately he, that is Jesus, 
left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now, Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came, and he took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. In a day when pragmatism rules and reigns, the questions that we often put before people are of a very utilitarian nature. What can he do for me? What can she do for me? Or if you want to be more pointed, you may even ask the question like this. Well, what has he done for me lately? Sometimes in our arrogance, we'll even allow that question to enter into the spiritual realm and we'll thrust it before God. Uh, as if God were obligated to respond to our whims and was obligated to meet our need and respond to our every beck and call. All right, God, tell me, what have you done for me lately? Uh, speak up, God, tell me. What have you ever done for me, ever? Well, the fact of the matter is, those questions are wonderfully answered by the text that we're going to examine tonight because we understand that in the Incarnation and in the sending of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, God indeed has done much for us. In fact, He has served us. He has ministered to us. We will even learn later in Mark's gospel, along with the other gospels, he sacrifices himself in our place. Most of those who study the gospel of Mark would quickly say the key verse is found in chapter 10 and verse 45. For the Son of Man came not to be ministered to, but to minister, to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Uh, the giving of his life as a ransom for many will take place uh, at the end of Mark's gospel, at the end of his life, when he dies on the cross there in Jerusalem. But in the midst of his ministry, he will serve again and again and again and again, wounded and helpless and hurting sinners and people. In other words, if you were to try to find a word that characterizes well the ministry of Jesus from its beginning to its end, it would be the word service. He came to serve. He came to minister. He is indeed the beautiful climactic fulfillment of the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53. Now, when we come to the events of Mark chapter 1, verse 21, all the way through verse 38, he actually presents it, and I think accurately so, as a day in the life of Jesus. In other words, if you were to examine a typical day in the life of Jesus as he was moving among the people, what would that day look like? What would be involved in that particular day? Now, he does this for us very clearly uh, by the use of that favorite word of his, the word immediately, that occurs in verse 21, verse 23, verse 28, verse 29, and also in verse 30. It gives the whole text a sense of urgency. Uh, the fact that Jesus is here and he is here on a mission. He's ministering here and he's ministering there. He's ministering to this one and now he's ministering to another one. He really is the servant of the Lord who is healing the physically sick 
And he is also setting free the spiritually captive to the prince of darkness and uh, his demonic horde. So as we examine this typical day in the life of Jesus, what do we find our Lord doing? And two very simple things stand out in this text. Number one, he came to heal the diseased. And number two, he came to deliver the demonized. So first of all, the text tells us Jesus came to heal the disease. Verse 29 begins, and immediately he left the synagogue. The previous paragraph reveals to us that he has been in the synagogue teaching, as the text says, with great authority. Furthermore, in the synagogue, he delivered a demon-possessed man. But now he's left the synagogue, and he's moved in, as the text says, the house of Simon and Andrew, and of course still with him are the other two, James and John. Interestingly, the evidence is pretty overwhelming that Peter's home will become a place, uh, if you like, even a base of operation for the ministry of Jesus in Galilee, uh, especially as it takes place <coughs> excuse me, around Capernaum. In fact, you'll find repeated references in uh, Mark's Gospel to his going to the house. It, doesn't, it does not always say Peter's house. Uh, but the implication is he's returning again to this same place. You see it again in chapter 2, verse 1, again in chapter 3, verse 20, again in chapter 9, verse 33, and even again in chapter 10, verse 10, before he makes his way to Jerusalem, which begins in chapter 11. Well, he comes to Peter's house, and a very interesting thing uh, is revealed to us. First of all, we discover that Peter is married. How do we know that? He has a mother-in-law. Uh, to have a mother-in-law, you must be married. So at least the first pope was a married man. And so he comes to the house of Simon Peter, and the Bible says that Peter's mother-in-law, Simon's mother-in-law, lay ill, and she was ill with a fever. The text doesn't tell us anything more than that. Does it tell us what was the nature of the illness? Does it tell us why she has the fever? You see, for Mark at this point, the issue of her illness is not the focus. The issue is the healer. The one who steps in and does something about this situation. So in very simple and very direct language, the text informs us that Jesus recognized her illness and he quickly goes to her, he touches her, and he heals her. In fact, Mark has really a, a very simple sequence of events that could be broken down into seven steps. Number one, he enters the house. Number two, they tell him that she is sick. Number three, he goes to her. Number four, he takes her up by the hand. Number five, he lifts her up. Number six, the fever leaves her. And then finally, and I love this, she serves them or better. She serves the one who served her. It's interesting to note that unlike the exorcist of the first century, and by the way, there were many exorcists in many of the religions of the day all throughout Palestine and the Greco-Roman world. Unlike them, Jesus uses no spells. Uh, he uses no incantations. He uses no rituals, but simply with compassion and a simple touch of his hand, he restores Simon Peter's mother-in-law to full health. In fact, verse 34 will later add in for us that on that day, on that particular day, he healed many who were sick with various diseases. In fact, the text implies that people just kept bringing them and bringing them and bringing them and bringing them. And he kept healing them and healing them and healing them and healing them. Now we raise the theological question. Is there healing in the atonement? Uh, this is a question that many times we who are Baptists have shied away from. 
On the other hand, it's a question that those in the Pentecostal and charismatic tradition have often seized upon with a very resounding affirmative. Yes, there is healing in the atonement now. Uh, there is healing in the atonement now fully. And if you do not experience such healing, then it is a problem of faith, most likely a lack of faith on your part. And so we tend to back up and say, well, actually, they're wrong and there is no healing in the atonement. And yet for us to go to that extreme, I think would be a very big mistake theologically. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 5 says, with his stripes, we are healed. And if you look at the context... It's not just talking about our spiritual healing, because Matthew chapter 8 and verse 17, which is the parallel account of this same event that we're looking at tonight in Mark's gospel, actually adds, Matthew does, a quote from Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 4, where the Bible says, Surely he has borne our griefs, our illnesses, and he has carried away our sorrows, Yet we esteemed, esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. So Matthew seems to connect physical healing that is displayed here in Mark's gospel as well as in his gospel. He seems to connect it with the issue of the atoning work of Christ. So, back up one more time. Ask the question, is there healing in the atonement? The answer is a resounding yes. There is healing in the atonement. Now the question becomes, in what way is that healing experienced? In what way is that healing fleshed out? Well, I would note that for some, by the wonderful grace and goodness of God, there is healing in the atonement immediately. I still believe that God raises the lame. I believe God gives sight to the blind. I believe God allows the deaf to hear. I even believe that God can use people today to raise the dead. I believe all of that. And yet the Bible is also clear. Everyone still eventually dies until Jesus comes again. So it would be accurate to say that for some, there is healing in the atonement immediately, but it's only temporary. Take perhaps the biggest example in the scriptures of all, that being the miraculous healing and raising from the dead of Lazarus. And yet there's every indication that he later would indeed die. And so, yes, there is healing for some immediately, but it's temporary. But for all who trust Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior, the Bible says, yes, there's healing in the atonement. And someday that healing will be both eternal and permanent. And I believe we find that affirmed where you would expect it to be affirmed in the last book of the Bible, in the last chapters of the book of the Bible, where in Revelation chapter 21 and 22, you read of what? A new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem. And they are indeed two of my favorite verses in all the Bible. You have the reference. Don't turn there. I'll just read it for you. Revelation chapter 21, verse 4 and verse 5, speaking of what our God does for us in eternity. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. 
And he who was seated and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and they are truth. So a balanced theology would answer the question, is there healing in the atonement? Absolutely. For some, it is immediate, though temporary, but for all who trust Christ, it is both eternal and also it will be permanent. So yes, Jesus came in part of his mission to heal the disease, and eventually that will even include you and me. But now secondly, the text also teaches us in verses 32 through 34 that Jesus came to deliver the demonized. He has already cast out one unclean spirit, as Mark describes this individual in chapter 1, verse 21 through 28. And as a result of that, verse 28 tells us his fame was spreading like wildfire. His fame was spreading everywhere throughout all the surrounding regions of Galilee. And so people are becoming more and more aware of this miracle worker who is now working out of Peter's house there in Capernaum. He has healed Peter's mother-in-law. He has cast out a demon possessed uh, a demon and a possessed man back in the synagogue and so now the text tells us in verse 32 that evening at sundown that's significant because what is it revealing to us is the sabbath has come to an end if you know uh, the way the Jews operated with respect to the law, uh, they would not travel more than a mile on any particular Sabbath. It would be considered uh, work. It would be considered going beyond what they were allowed to do. But once the sun goes down, and their days go from sundown uh, to sundown. And so at sundown on Saturday, you actually now begin a new day. So now that it is a new day, the Sabbath is passed, that evening at sundown. They brought to him all, verse 32, who were sick or who were oppressed by demons. Note, in addition to what is said there in verse 32, they brought to him all, verse 33, the whole city was gathered at the door, verse 34, he healed many. And I would just note as, a, as an aside, uh, all that we read here gives all the evidence of an eyewitness uh, report. And again, as we said when we began our study of Mark's gospel, uh, the eyewitness, the apostolic source behind Mark's gospel most likely was the apostle Peter. And of course, if this is Peter's house and he's having to put up with all these people crowding at the door, crowding into the house, uh, he thought, you know, we, we get away from the synagogue and all that's going on there. We get to the house without well, going it. Mama in law sick. Well, Jesus heals her. She gets up, starts serving him something to eat. Praise God. It's going to be a nice, quiet evening after the Sabbath ends. And boy, did he have it wrong. They brought to him all verse 32. The whole city was gathered at the door. Verse 33. He healed many. Verse 34. It's like Peter's going back saying this, let me just tell you what happened this particular evening. Now, note very carefully what follows here. Verse 32 says that they brought to him those who were oppressed by demons. Verse 34 says he cast out many demons. In other words, to look at it to begin with, Satan and his minions have once again met the Savior in spiritual combat, and it has been no contest. They have received an immediate and a decisive thrashing. And then you have this very interesting statement at the end of verse 34, which says, they knew him. Now, we're going to see in a moment that because they knew him, he told them to be quiet. He would not let them speak. But there's something very fascinating. I've mentioned it earlier, but I'll mention it again and again so that we see it. In Mark's gospel, 
The demons always understand perfectly who Jesus is. Humans and the disciples, on the other hand, almost always get it wrong. They almost always get it wrong. And it's really interesting to me that Mark would put it out in this kind of way. You would think if the gospel of Mark and Matthew and Luke and John were made up, if I, if I were making them up, I'd make the demons look like idiots. And I'd make us look like we're smart. It's just the opposite. The demons, though evil, uh, Brother David, they've got good theology. I mean, they've got their theology down pat. They understand that they've got a good understanding of the doctrine of God. They've got a good understanding of the doctrine of creation. They've got a good understanding of the doctrine of Christology. And they would take my systematic theology class and they'd make an A. Now, they're still going to spend eternity in a place called hell, but they had their theology down pat. On the other hand, humans, confused, amazed, astonished. Sometimes even those closest to Jesus will say to him, uh, the cross, oh no, Lord, you may be the Messiah, but I, I've got a better strategy for your future as the coronated king. And what does he have to say to, to, uh, to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. That'll bless you, won't it? You mind the things of man and not the things of God. So he is casting out the demons. He's casting out many demons. And the text says they knew who he was. Now another key question. Is all illness, now say it this way. Was the ancient world naive in attributing sickness and illness to demonic activity. In other words, did they just not really understand that uh, demons don't really exist and people get sick uh, for only one reason, physical, physiological uh, problems and maladies. And yes, sometimes we may have in the past wrongly attributed that to demonic activity, but now we know it, 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 at best nothing more than psychosomatic. So there's really no demons. And they really were messed up because they tended to see everything together. If you're sick, it's demonic. If you're ill, it's demonic. Were they really that naive and were they really that off base? Well, again, look at what the text says in verse 32. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. Verse 34 again. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and... He cast out many demons. In other words, I think we can make three very clear observations from this text about the mindset of these first century persons. And I would say them this way. Number one, all disease and sickness is eventually and ultimately the result of sin in this world, but not demonic oppression or activity. In other words, now don't misunderstand me. If you get sick, like I've been sick the last several days with a cold, did I get sick with that cold because I did something sinful? Now, I obviously have done things sinful. That, that's a given, okay? But is there a cause and effect relationship between you've got a cold because you did something sinful? No. No. I have a cold. I, I got a cold because I played smacky mouth with six grandchildren for about four days. And they're little germ incubators. And though they carry them, and even if they get sick, they get over it. 
They give it to us, and we stay sick for days, which is very unfair, but it's the way they work. And so you're kissing your grandkids who come at you with nasty mouths, open mouths, whoever else knows what's in there. And the odds are, you know, you're going to catch a cold. Now, did I get a cold because I did something sinful? Actually, I would argue I was being very spiritual. I was being a very godly granddaddy. Of course, a selfish one, too, but I was doing the right kind of granddaddy things. But no, you get colds. You have heart attacks, you get brain tumors, you get cancer, you eventually die because sin in general has entered into this world. But the Bible never says there's always, sometimes there may be, but there's not always the case wherein a particular sin results in a particular kind of illness. Secondly, Satan and his demons may inflict physical affliction. But not all physical affliction is demonic in origin. That would be a faulty conclusion for us to draw today or to impose upon them. In other words, number three, the ancients were not as naive and gullible, as ignorant and uninformed as they are sometimes accused of being by those who live in the modern world. They weren't that stupid. They weren't that dumb. Though their theology was not perfect, they understood that some bad things happen because of sin and sickness, and some things do happen that are bad because of demonic activity and oppression. But if we simply focus upon that, we'll miss what Mark's getting at. Because Mark's concern is not primarily on those who are diseased. He's not primarily concerned about those who are demonized. He's primarily concerned about the servant. And what he wants you to do is watch the servant serve. He's healing many who are sick. He's casting out many demons. In other words, this is a clear sign that the kingdom of God has come in the person of the great and awesome servant king. It's moving forward. It's moving forward with great speed. It's moving forward with great success. My goodness, it looks like we're on the verge of entering into the kingdom itself and the millennium. So why in the world? If everything is moving so well, so fast, in what appears to be the right direction, why does Jesus say at the end of verse 34, he would not permit the demons to speak? Next week we will see down in the same chapter in verse 44, after he heals the leper, he says to the leper there in verse 44, see that you say nothing to anyone. Jesus, what's the deal? Uh, hey, we got a good thing going here. Got a good movement. Got momentum. Crowds are building. Crowds are coming. Hey, before long, we'll be in a position to step up and go against Rome and given what you're capable of pulling off. Hey, knocking down the Caesar, wiping out the Romans, piece of cake. So why in the world would he short circuit that? We'll see later. That when they start to make him king after he heals the, uh, or after he feeds the 5,000, he withdraws and goes away. Then he comes back the next day and preaches the bread of life sermon and says, you want to follow me? Great. Eat my flesh, drink my blood, or you have no part in me. And they say, this is a hard saying. Who can handle this? And it says, from that time on and going forward, many no longer followed him. In other words, he ran off the crowd. In fact, I was reading this last night uh, in one of my commentaries. The crowds in Mark are seldom pictured in a positive light. Most of the time, the crowds are there because they want to see something sensational. 
They want to see something stupendous. They want to see the, the magic man do something big again. And it is almost without exception that they are not pictured positively at any point, at any time in Mark's gospel. Practical application for those of you that have been called to ministry, you can build a big crowd with a circus. It doesn't mean you've built a church. You can build a big crowd by doing fancy things, but that doesn't mean you're building devoted followers of Jesus. My experience has been that when it comes to devoted followers of Jesus, the crowd tends to get smaller, not larger. That's been my experience throughout my 30-something years of ministry, and it's certainly been my experience around the world where I've been among persecuted believers where the numbers may not be great, but more the devotion and the commitment is. So here's the question. Why is Jesus telling the demons? And why does he tell later this leper not to tell anyone? Well, this raises a question that theologians have referred to as the messianic secret. You say, what in the world is the messianic secret? Well, let me quote James Edwards for you at just a short length about what he says is going on here. And I quote from his very fine commentary. On three occasions, demons are enjoined to silence. Chapter 1, verse 25, chapter 1, verse 34, chapter 3, verse 11. Jesus commands silence after four of his miracles. Cleansing of a leper, chapter 1, verse 44. Raising of a dead girl, chapter 5, verse 43. Healing of a deaf mute, chapter 7, verse 36. Healing of a blind man, chapter 8, verse 26. Twice the disciples are commanded to be silent, chapter 8, verse 30, chapter 9, verse 9. Twice Jesus withdraws from crowds to escape detection, Chapter 7, verse 24. Chapter 9, verse 30. And beyond these explicit admonitions to secrecy, Mark implies secrecy in other aspects of Jesus' public ministry. But ironically, the command to silence often results in the opposite. The more he commanded to silence, the more they kept talking about it. So, what is going on here? When one considers carefully the historical context, the, the spirit of the age of the first century, what they expected in terms of a Messiah, what they believed would happen in terms of the coming of God's kingdom when the Messiah showed up, I think there are a number of observations, you have them in your notes there, that can be made about this interesting question about why did Jesus hide and conceal his Messiahship during his ministry, and I'll note them with you very quickly. Number one, first of all, he did so to, to avoid the impression of being a mere miracle worker, a, a divine man or a magician, since so many commands to silence accompany the miraculous works he was doing. Secondly, he did so to avoid unnecessary and unhelpful publicity in order to have more moments of private teaching and peace with his disciples. Number three, and it has a star by it because I think it's the main reason, to avoid the mistaken idea of the type of Messiah he would be. His Messiahship was to be manifested through service and suffering, not sensational displays of miraculous activity which would excite the political messianic fever. Gosh, I, I need to be careful here, but I want to tell you something. We in America are just as susceptible to that type of thing. We are. We, we, whether we intend to or not, jump on the bandwagon of what becomes for us nothing less than a political messiah. 
And I got news for you. You hear me, you hear me well. And you all know where my heart is and where my inclinations are. There is no Messiah coming from the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, okay? If you don't get that, you need to wake up. I could say it more harshly, but I'm sweet tonight, and Charlotte's not here, and she'll hear about it, and she'll be mean when she gets back to me. So you tell her I was sweet. You're misguided. You're not paying good attention. There are no messiahs in the Democratic Party, and there are no messiahs in the Republican Party, okay? I don't care what Glenn Beck says. I don't care. He's a lost Mormon. So that ought to give you some pause right there, but so we'll just leave it where it is. But just as they did in their day, they looked to the political realm for a savior. I find many in the church today being just as naive when it comes to what they believe will be their ultimate savior and deliverer. Number four, he did this to express his humility as the suffering servant of the Lord. Number five, he kept it secret to inform us that only through the medium of faith, Ultimately, faith in a crucified and humiliated Jesus of Nazareth is his messiahship personally apprehended and understood. Number six, he did so to avoid recognition from an undesirable source such as the demonic. If he were going to have someone pushing his agenda, he didn't need the demons to be doing it. He wasn't interested in the demons doing it. Number seven, he did so to emphasize and point out the hostility of the religious and political leadership, and to mark clearly his own choice of the destined hour of his passion. It's not found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but in John's gospel, again and again and again, you'll see the phrase, his hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. He would decide when he would die. And he would decide how to bring his ministry to an end. And his hour had not yet come. And so in some sense, this may also explain why he kept putting it off, putting it off, be quiet, hush, don't talk, leave it alone. Because he knew that it could perhaps bring about a premature crisis with respect to his identity and also to his mission. Now, you say, why are you even raising all of this? Well, I'm raising all this because this whole issue of the Messianic secret was brought up a number of years ago by a German scholar who basically said, cutting to the chase, Jesus wasn't the Messiah. Jesus did not think he was the Messiah. They didn't think he was the Messiah. It becomes a post-Easter creation of the early church. You say, well, that's because he rose from the dead. No, he didn't believe that he rose from the dead. But somehow they became convinced in some kind of magical, mythical, make-believe, superstitious kind of a way that he was the Messiah. Well, how can you explain his being the Messiah if for the totality of his ministry it seems like people didn't think he was the Messiah? And he was even telling people, don't say I'm the Messiah. Oh, the church created this idea of Jesus as the Son of God. They created this idea of the Messianic secret, and they were able then to explain why that's what happened during his ministry before he was nailed to a cross, put in a tomb, and rotted away so that all we have left today is his dust. Well, let me respond as you see it there in your notes. The idea that this is a mark and creation to explain why Jesus was not recognized as Messiah prior to the Easter event is untenable and should be rejected as liberal conjecture, grounded in an anti-supernatural bias. I know that's a mouthful. You can unwrap it later. That Hebrews rooted in Jewish monotheism. There's just one God. 
would have conceived of, much less fabricated Jesus as Messiah in terms of divine sonship, is simply not believable. No, the messianic secret arose from Jesus himself and his self-conscious identification with Isaiah's suffering servant of the Lord. And therefore, the need to guard his messianic identity from both premature and false understandings. You see, he was not the Messiah. He was the Messiah, excuse me. But he was not the kind of Messiah that the first century world hoped for. However, I love this. He was the kind of Messiah that that world, indeed the whole world, truly and genuinely needed. Not the kind they hoped for, but the kind we all desperately, desperately need. Because, you see, our greatest need is not sickness, it's sin. And our greatest enemy is not the demonic, but it is death, spiritual death. And so we did not need a political Messiah. No, we needed a saving Messiah. One who would give his life as a ransom, as a payment for sinners like you and like me. I'm grateful that God did not send us the kind of Messiah we wanted. Rather, he sent us the kind of Messiah we needed. So what can we conclude? By the way, I did something tonight in this study that I will probably continue to do in the future. When I teach theology, or excuse me, when I teach preaching at the seminary, uh, I tell my students always to ask five questions of every text and to ask them in this order. Uh, What does this text teach me about God? What does this text teach me about fallen humanity? What does this text teach me about Jesus? What does this text tell me I need to know? And what does this text tell me I need to do? I asked those five questions of every text, but this time I actually put them together in my conclusion. So, question number one, what does this text teach me about God? It teaches me this. God cares about our problems and challenges in this fallen, sin-sick, sin-infested world. He does care. Secondly, what does this text teach me about man? It teaches me that God knows we hurt and suffer, and that sin is indeed a constant reminder of our finite, mortal humanity. What does this text teach me about Christ? It teaches me that God has done something to remedy our near hopeless condition by sending his son, Jesus. He heals the disease. He heals the demonized. And he heals sinners like you and me through his wonderful atonement. What does God want me to know? He wants me to know that the diseased and the demonized should run to Christ and Christ alone. For only there will they find ultimate and complete deliverance. And what does he want us to do? Well, like Peter's mother-in-law. Having been touched and healed by his compassionate hand, we should be quick to serve him and quick to serve others out of grateful gratitude for such a wonderful Savior and such a marvelous salvation. It was a normal day in the life of Jesus, but it was anything but normal for those who encountered and experienced his saving power and his wonderful touch. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that... Every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before because we come to understand something more about his greatness, his goodness, his graciousness. And I thank you, Lord, that on this particular day, after he had had a full day and no doubt was tired and would like to have rested, as they kept bringing more and more and more and more and more to the door, he healed every one of them, those who were sick with diseases and those who were oppressed by demons. And yet, Lord, we also thank you that ultimately 
he did not deal with those immediate superficial issues only. He dealt with our ultimate problem, that being the sin that resides deep within our hearts and souls that could only be eradicated as he bore in his body the full wrath of your justice, satisfying it completely, and then gloriously being raised from the dead. Again, Lord, I thank you so much that you did not send us the kind of Savior, the kind of Messiah we might have hoped for, but rather you sent us the kind of Savior, the kind of Messiah that we needed. You sent us one who came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. May we rejoice then in that atonement, and may we serve others as he, the Lord Jesus, has served us. For we make our prayer in his strong and powerful name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.